Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to lawyers, the business of law, and how we can better solve the access to justice crisis that continues to fly under the radar. On the show today, we are excited to welcome Aaron Baer, partner at Aaron Burles LLP and LinkedIn influencer extraordinaire. Aaron joins us to discuss some of the frustrating issues facing the legal profession, including the lack of innovation at law firms, law schools failing to prepare their students for real-world practice, and of course, our personal favorite here at Good Lawyer, the negative outcomes produced by the billable hour. Now before you accuse us of being downers, we also spend some time discussing the solutions to these problems, and I promise you it's genius because it's our opinions. And just to be fair, we even get Aaron's take on some of the advantages of working at a big firm. For any of you interested in hearing more from Aaron, please check out his thought-provoking posts related to the legal profession on LinkedIn. Links, of course, in the show notes. All right, that's it for me. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to be on the podcast with you. Uh, well, the pleasure is all ours, and we appreciate you taking time out of what I'm sure is your busy schedule to join us and uh, give us a few nuggets of wisdom on the legal industry. So uh, we definitely appreciate that. But where are we finding you today? So I'm in Toronto right now. So I uh, work at Aaron Burles uh, in Toronto. So in theory, a Bay Street firm. These days, I work out of an office in my house where I spend 90% of my day. So uh, like working cozy couch, from Toronto. Cozy couch you got behind you there. Exactly. <laughs> How are you finding that? The the change from the corporate office to the, the couch that I can see in the background. <laughs> Has it been a, a good one for you? Or are you getting a little bit stir crazy being at home all the time? A mix of the two? For me, it's it's been great, and I'm, I'm definitely an outlier in some ways. So my practice has been paperless and location agnostic for about the last three to four years. And when I first started as a lawyer uh, back in 2014, I really didn't see law as being the kind of thing you could do that gave you that flexibility, you know, if you wanted to work in a different country or things like that. And I think part of that was the profession at that time, and probably still was pre-COVID and still is today, but especially at that time, was so paper intensive, and people really weren't thinking about these things. Once I got rid of paper and once I started using you know, enough software and technology that allowed me to work wherever I was, that became a game changer. And, and every year for the last couple of years, I would go to Mexico with my wife in the winter for a week. And I say to her, I think I could do this for a month or longer and work here, not just be on vacation, but, but work here. You know, I realized all I needed was some good internet access, a couple monitors, and that's about it. Because I mean, so little of the actual work I did, whether it was pre-COVID or, or currently, involved face-to-face or in-person interactions. You know, sure, you've got networking, you've got events where you're meeting potential clients or current clients. And there's definitely some value sometimes to an in-person you know, meeting. But by and large these days, they're just not needed. And often I'd say to the client, well, you're like, you don't need to come here if you want to come. I'm happy to see you in person. But if you're coming because you think you have to, you know, it's entirely up to you. So I think that flexibility is a great thing moving forward for this profession. You know, you can be an Ontario lawyer or an Alberta lawyer or what have you, and in theory be practicing in different places. And for me, as a result, because I was already paperless, because I was location agnostic, uh, really the only change for me was a lot of those phone calls turned into video calls. And that hasn't been a problem on my end at all. I've, I've enjoyed that. Uh, certainly, you know, you miss the little in-office interactions and things like that. But I think because I was set up so well uh, to, to be location agnostic in the first place, it was a much easier transition. And I know that has not been the case for a lot of people. And I should say, I don't have kids, especially young kids. And that has definitely you know, been handy here where our you know, I can focus on work and other things and I'm not juggling 15 personal responsibilities on top of a full-time job. Totally. And, you know, that's one of the pitches that I make to lawyers that are interested in good lawyer is, you know, it, it the future for lawyers in my mind is about freedom. It's about flexibility. It's not about, you know, driving downtown, paying for expensive parking, certainly in Calgary parking is crazy. And, you know, dressing up in the suit and working in the, you know, the marble foyer, that's just not what I'm yeah, for seeing sure. for, especially with this new generation of lawyers and frankly, some of the, you know, more senior folks as well. It's just not a driving factor. Yeah. I think, you know, the days of, you know, dreaming about these fancy offices and all that, I mean, certainly that was never that appealing to me. And at the end of the day, when you're working, you're working anyways. And I think, you know, these things sound impressive on paper, but like there's a real cost too, you know, like the cost of that real estate isn't cheap. And it means either you need to work harder to, to pay for that overhead or you're charging clients more and they're not getting real value for, you know, the paintings on the walls 
in the empty office space right now. And so I think for me, it's always been about, you know, how do I help clients find value? How do I provide, you know, cost-effective, practical legal advice and do it at a rate that works for them? And I think- and I just got to dig in there. How, how do you do that? Because if I'm not mistaken, Aaron and Bearless is, you know, one of those fancy schmancy law firms with the big <laughs> expensive offices. Yeah. We, you know, and it's funny because, you know, those offices are, are largely sitting empty right now, obviously. And the reality is, you know, we're eating that overhead. And I think it's, you know, I've been having these conversations with people internally and externally for years and saying, you know, we should probably look into different models. You know, do we really need a hundred percent of our staff working out of a Bay street office are there different ways of doing things? You know, can we share assistance and things like that differently? Some of that has fallen on deaf ears. Some of it maybe hasn't or has been percolating, but let's put it this way. I think the conversations at any big firm or quite frankly, any firm have picked up, right? Because now that, you know, the workforce was forced to work remotely, suddenly we've realized, you know, not everyone needs to be here. And then you start having the fun conversations about what does the future of work look like? And, you know, everyone is different. If you're an 80 year old lawyer, uh, it might look different. If you're a 20 year old, or 25 year old who's in a tiny condo with a young kid and stuff, very different working from home. But I think we're gonna see a lot of change there, but certainly I think there's never been a better time for people to start their own firms, do it you know, on their own, because if you can do this without overhead, the math looks a lot different. And you look at a platform like Good Lawyer and you say, yeah, you know, I can make this work. I can actually have a really profitable career working with clients I like and not have to charge an arm and a leg. So I think it's, there's lots of fun stuff happening and we're at a really interesting inflection point right now music to my ears my friend and you know one of the things that i always found a little crazy too and i'm sure you've experienced this at the firm you know pre-covid when everyone was there it's amazing that you know everyone comes and shuffles into the office and then they all go into their individual offices and close the doors and you know like that is like so common or at least it was in my day and For it's sure. just like what is going on here like it's not like we're all collaborating we're working in silos and then I think, you know, that's part of why, you know, I've sort of seen once, once COVID started, I said, you know, I'm probably going to do this forever from home because that was me at the office. I'd been super busy the last few years on all sorts of things. And so when you're on calls all day, your door is closed. And my view is, you know, why take the subway? Why drive in? Why spend that time to literally go somewhere and close your door? I think there is obviously lots of, so you know, useful moments, whether, you know, for younger lawyers or even just those little moments in the hallway or what have you, where you can learn stuff or, or get to know your colleagues better. And you lose out on those if you're not intentional about it working remotely, but by and large, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think I'm losing out on much at all. I do think it's very different for younger lawyers because like you need those moments of mentorship. And I don't think you actually need that in person. I just think lawyers have to rethink how they create those moments. You know, it's more intentional now than before everything was really just things happen. And, and that was the way it was done. Right. Totally. And you're, and you're talking to probably the two biggest social butterflies back when we were in the big firm. I was, I was roaming the floors more than any other lawyer in the entire office because I love that social interaction. And that's where, you know, I get a lot of enjoyment and where I learned a lot of lessons. So I totally agree. There is a value, but you know, there's, there's something got to be in the middle where there's flexibility and also opportunity for that connection and that mentorship when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think we're, we're going to see this flexible, you know, schedule. I have to imagine most firms will go to a two or three, you know, work from home, go back to the office because that will allow them to downsize their office space. It's pretty money. nice on, on the overhead math, right? Good like on it's... the overhead math. And also I think, you know, do you want to be the one firm that says, yep, we're going back to full suits and ties and we're going back to, you know, every, you must be in the office. Like that's not a great recruiting tool. No. Uh, you know, <laughs> we know what our generation is looking for. And it's definitely, as you said, uh, Brett, you know, flexibility and all those things. And I think the firms realize, or, you know, I'm curious on the dress code. That's going to be the one interesting piece where I'm very curious to see where that lands. I abandoned wearing suits probably three or four years ago. And uh, so I was ahead of the curve. And I, I just can't imagine all these people who I'm seeing on calls dressed casually. Suddenly, as soon as they're back full time, ha- you know, going back to a full suit, it just seems mind blowing, but it wouldn't surprise me. So, well, well we're, we're a bunch of cowboys out here in Calgary. So we're a little ahead of game in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's great. Um, already, like I said before the show, I didn't think we'd have too much trouble filling the time and I haven't even got to my first question yet. So exactly. uh, we're doing a, we're right on schedule in that respect. But uh, before I do ask that first question, did you, when you went paperless, that that's like against the grain already in, in a law firm and yours is not a small law firm. I believe you have over 200 lawyers now or something, which maybe by Toronto standards, isn't the, the biggest, but certainly a big shop. Did, yep. did you get some pushback on that? Did people say like, what are you doing? Why don't you just print like normal? Like what would well, be normal? I certainly cost us some short term revenue. Cause when you're charging 25 cents a page and printing hundred page agreements, uh, 
bad for the bottom line, I guess. Um, no, I don't think there was anything on that front. I think, you know, I started, I was probably the first person in our office who, you know, like I always find it odd for internal meetings. Everyone would be there with like a pen and paper. This is common across all law firms. Uh, you know, most businesses at that point in time, most people had laptops and we were still using desktops or certainly there was not a culture that I saw at our firm and at other firms of, <laughs> of just, you know, mobile note-taking. And it helps that my handwriting is completely illegible, which is great if people are trying to read what I write. But I would run into my own challenges occasionally where you're just furiously, especially as a younger lawyer, taking notes in a meeting and then doing 15 things at once after. And by the time you finally get back to figure out what happened, you know, hopefully you don't lose that piece of paper. Hopefully you can read it, all those things. Brandy I remember thinking notes like, here. why don't I just take notes on a laptop and or paper, a tablet? Baby. There you go. You know, but you know, substantive stuff. And suddenly, you know, this piece of paper is valuable. Okay. So what's my workflow? Am I scanning this in? Am I, am I typing it out? Whatever. And I thought like, why am I wasting my time? And also why am I in a meeting and not having access if I'm in someone else's office to our system? Like, wouldn't I rather have the documents open in front of me, be able to edit live, take my notes somewhere logical. Like there's so many processes where I realized, you know, so, so that was sort of one of those things where that made sense. So, you know, I would lug a laptop back and forth, which quite frankly was not uncommon outside of this industry, but almost unheard of probably as a lawyer where, you know, you still see people lugging, you know, briefcases or whatever else home. So I think the paperless shift was really just, you know, I just looked at the amount of paper and thought I would see lawyers who would just store everything that was printed. And that always seemed like some lawyers who would print every email and store it and catalog it and have just, our office was just inundated with boxes of paper that cost real money. Like whether you have offsite storage that actually has a cost or you're not optimizing the use of your really expensive real estate in the first place. And I remember thinking like, all this is digital. Like I already have all these emails saved. We have a good document management system. Like why wouldn't I use a thing that lets me find it faster than, than this approach? And I think at some point I just realized, okay, like if I can have a computer with me, then I can be paperless, right? Because now, yeah, well, I don't need to print this. I'll just be in the document in these meetings. I'll have it with me. And I'm young enough to be used to reading on a screen. And I'm comfortable enough, you know, reading long documents on a screen. And it's a lot faster to read them where you can, you know, find, you know, control F words and do other things and use different technology. So, yeah, I think it was just, it's, it made sense. And uh, I don't think it was a, a surprise for people I worked with, but it was definitely against the grain for sure. But it's paid off during COVID. Oh, absolutely. And I'm getting, I'm getting flashbacks right now to my days at the firm, flipping through hundreds of pages of partner emails, trying to get to the, you know, the thing that I need to work on. And I'm like, control F, this is, this is control F. (laughs) A hundred percent. And I mean, I I know a lot of people who struggle. Control F that I'm getting charged out at four, four fifty an hour. Yeah. And you know, my view has always been, you know, the way the sausage gets made, you know, has always been the secret, I think, in the legal industry. And, and as you you both know, the sausage is quite expensive to make, but it's not always, you know, uh, those steps of the sausage making process aren't always the valuable ones, but they cost. Well, when you, know, you reinvent the hour. sausage every time, it's going to be a little <laughs> more expensive, isn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, for me, it's a lot about process. And so part of that was paperless. Part of that was just how I operate. But I think you can't provide that value to clients and still do good work unless you have a good workflow and a good process. But just stick, sticking on this theme, since we're there, when you went virtual, again, this was pre-pandemic, was there quite a bit of pushback? Because like, let's be honest, at bigger firms, there's still a bit of an ass in chair mentality. They don't tell you you have to show up at eight or seven or nine sure. or whatever it is, but there is an implied, like the, you know, we, we joke about the walk around at 530 sure. with uh, one of the partners making sure seems who's still there almost taking attendance was that uh, an, an issue or does your firm it sounds make it might be a bit more progressive than some of the others. yeah no we're definitely more progressive in that sense I mean I re- even remember thinking back to when I was a summer student and friends were at other firms and, and they would say like you know people the students are deliberately trying to stay longer than the other students because like they're they're, they're worried about this optics game and Erdem Burles I think has always been good at that since I've been there you know in terms of optics people didn't care get the work done I'm not a morning guy at all, so it'd be rare to see me in the office before 10 uh, the last three or four years, but I'd be on, you know, at home dealing with emails. I'm much more of a late night kind of guy, so much more common to see things for me late at night. Uh, so I, you know, I figure you can't work both shifts. And at the end of the day, uh, especially as a corporate lawyer, uh, when deals are live and things are going crazy, the late nights, you're, you're going to have to deal with stuff at night anyways. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, the profession is shifting, obviously, to a smarter model of, look, you know, we, we've dealt with this during COVID. And I think firms have also seen, look, with a lot of their staff that maybe they were a little bit too, you know, 
too too narrow-minded in terms of you know giving them the flexibility to work different hours or things like that. Obviously, that's not the case all around. There's I'm sure lots of examples of people underworking and people overworking. But I think by and large, you know, when you look at KPIs for law firms, you know, hours build. And the good thing is, well, it's a terrible metric. At the end of the day, if you're building enough hours, no one's going to care whether you're there or not. That's going to be the number one thing they care about. Whether that should be the case, difference conversation altogether. Yeah, okay. So where we gotta go, we gotta dig into that. I completely agree with you. I think it's a it's not a terrible metric in and of itself. And there's like some reason behind it. And I totally get that, but to use it as the only metric that they care about is so detrimental for so many things. So I would love to know, you know, what are some KPIs that, that you would like to see from a law firm? So, I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about the bill bar, as you said, Brett, you know, there's good and there's bad. I mean, I I tend to believe again, my belief uh, that, you know, you're either, your hourly rates are too low or too high. And what I mean by that is, you know, you build the same hourly rate, no matter what you're doing. If you're providing high level strategic advice based on all the stuff I know, I'm probably actually charging too little, but for the actual doing the work, I'm probably charging way too much. Like Mm -hmm. depending on what I'm doing, my value to the client is very different. Um, But as we know, I think a lot of the hourly rates are are high. And I think the billable hour, you know, model contributes to bad mental health. It contributes to bad incentives. There we go. Bad incentives for the clients. And, you know, there's also the, the honesty element or the ethics element, and we're not going to go into detail there, but, you know, needless to say, you know, if I am, if I'm the clients, and this is how I run my practice, if I'm the client, uh, I don't want to pay somebody who says I'll bill you X amount per hour. And I'll tell you how much you owe me after I've done the work. That is not something I'm interested in signing up for if it's my own money. Mm -hmm. And I don't see why any client would see it differently. So even a lot of the work I do these days is either fixed fee or alternative fees, or at least quoted. Because to me, like nothing gives me more anxiety than having to uh, send out a bill and pray the client is not going to complain about it. Like if I haven't quoted them, that's not great on my end. And that's not how you build good relationships. So that's not to say 100% of the work I do is on that basis. But I, I encourage that with my clients because I'd rather make sure that when we're starting out, we're on the same page. Because if we're way off to start, let's, let's make this much better for everybody and not create you know, an emotional headache. And we'll find somebody that fits your needs. But but very often, I mean, the way I work is we're able to figure something out and do it in a cost-effective way because I'm trying not to reinvent the wheel over and over. But to go to your question, Brad, on KPIs, I mean, there's so many ways to provide value. And, and a lot of the stuff I've done internally and externally over the past five years has been atypical, sort of wearing my, my non-lawyer hat or wearing my, you know, we're not supposed to use those, that word these days, but, you know, wearing my hat of somebody who is not practicing law. But the challenge often is, I think firms struggle, you know, they know that there's value in that work because, well, they have an accounting department, they have marketing people, they have business development people. So clearly there, there's value there or else they wouldn't pay those people. But when you're the one doing that work, I think historically a lot of firms have really struggled to figure out how do we value it? Because the existing metrics are how many hours have you built and how much work have you brought in? And then everything is a derivative of those two things. And so, you know, even if you're stuck with a billable hour model, at least giving people credit for certain other types of work that they're doing that are solving real problems and adding real value to the firm is important. And I've heard people say, well, people can just lie about their non-billable hours, to which I would say, well, they're probably firstly lying about their billable hours, let's be honest. But more importantly, ask for outputs. Stop measuring inputs and say, look, you can have up to X amount of hours credit for this work, but you need to prove that you've at least done something or added value, whether it was a tangible, deliverable, or something else. But these are not rocket science solutions. I mean, most industries don't have a, a model where you measure every second of your day, and they seem to have KPIs. So, this oh is- man, we we oh. are cut we are cut from the same cloth. One of the things I did before I left the firm was uh, submit a couple innovation ideas, neither of which got picked up. <laughs> One was for because I was on Scomment at the bitter. time. <laughs> yeah, I was on Scomment at the time, and so I came up with like a metric system on how you could evaluate a secondee because they're not billing time, they're, they're away, but they can be adding value by bringing work back to the firm, building relationships, that type of thing. But the one that I think will really um, sit with, well with you is mentorship. My other idea was credit people yep. for mentoring younger lawyers. And you can have you know, a mentorship lawyer you know, partner in charge of this. Sure. And you have to get a mentorship you know, lesson approved for X hours. But so many lawyers aren't even hitting target anyways. And if some of the ones that are really good at teaching and you know love that could you know get benefit, clear billable hour benefit yep. from mentoring younger lawyers, 
the ripple effects would be huge. Oh, no, no brainer for sure. And I mean, I see some, I, I work with some incredible lawyers who are like great mentors. And I mean, they're doing it because they care. Like they're, they're, they're getting the opposite of paid for it. They're taking their time where they're going to get no credit for it. And I mean, I do a lot of that as well because it's just something I'm passionate about and it brings me joy. And I think it's, it's important, but you know, it's, it's all these things, you know, you end up with a tragedy of the common sometimes where you have things that are clearly in the best interest of the firm, but if you don't have anyone who's incentivized to do it, you end up with somebody, either it doesn't happen because billable hour work will take priority or people don't actually follow through, mm-hmm. or you end up with people getting frustrated because they're doing that and they're adding real value. And then they're told, you know, well, it's a business and uh, didn't help our bottom line. And you're going, it surely did. It's just a little bit harder to quantify right now, but absolutely it's helping your bottom line. And if you can't see that, you know, we've got bigger problems. And I think we do have bigger problems. That, that is the issue. Totally. And, you know, from my experience, I'm just remembering back, like we had this exact system for certain pro bono work. And there was one lawyer who was designated. You could run it past. Yep. I think it was Bruce. You had, to, <laughs> you, had to, you had to get his approval. And if you did, you got X number of non-billable work that would be qualified as billable. So the model's already there. Yep. It was just really buying into how important mentorship is. And applying the same thing to mentorship. hundred percent. I mean, my view is, you know, any business should be determining, you know, how do you want your employees or your staff to behave? And based on that, you know, create an incentive system that, that aligns with that. And then you're good. And if you're worried about abuse of it, checks and balances are, are not hard. Uh, there really aren't any checks and balances on the billing hours, which is, you know, it's the ethics underlying it at the end of the day. Well, there is a check and balance. That's the client paying the, the, the fee. Well, I was going to say there is, but it depends on on the client's willingness to pay um, and, and that, that varies. And then also different firms have different ways of figuring out, you know, if the client isn't paying, who bears that burden? Is it the partner on the file whose client it is? Is it each lawyer on the file? And how does that get allocated? So totally. there's lots of fun there, but these are not hard problems to solve. At least, the, you know. Mentorship, just if there's any partners out there listening, dead simple, give billable hour credit for stipulated <laughs> mentorship activities and have one of the partners who loves to mentor sign off on it. Yeah. And if you're worried, cap the number of hours per month or per year and you're done. Yep. For sure. Yeah. So just kind of sticking on this. And again, this is not going at all according to plan so far, (laughs) but this is a very interesting conversation. So this is, this is great. But when you, you talked about quoting or or giving an upfront price the best that you can, do you find that intensive? Like does it take you quite a bit of time to do it? Or is it, is it something that you kind of have a good feel for once you've seen a few of them? It sounds like, am I going off gut or real data? And as a lawyer, uh, yes, you can imagine exactly. there's no data exactly. involved because I wouldn't even know what that word means in the first place. Um, I, I would say it's going to depend on the firm, obviously. You know, some firms have really gotten a lot sharper in terms of hiring, you know, good data people, pricing specialists, things like that. And, you know, law firms or lawyers have a treasure trove of data. Uh, a lot of it is very unstructured and very not usable. Um, and it also depends how you dock it because you know there is some really good software out there meant for the legal industry. But if you're block docketing and your dockets are a mess, it's really hard to sort of work backwards. So, you know, so I do a series of work, for example, where I do a lot of work with tech companies coming to Canada or really companies in general, but a lot of tech companies coming to Canada. And as you both know, we're, you know, great tech sector in Canada. Toronto's great. Where you are is also great. And, you know, labor is a lot cheaper than the U.S. Talent is really similar, if not as good. We've got free healthcare here, amongst a number of other things. And so, you know, I know in advance what questions are going to come up, the type of things we're going to need to do for each client, from getting them incorporated in the tax stuff up front to all sorts of other things. So we're able to pretty confidently say, we'll be in this range, or, or you know, we can do this for this price. And just the way I'm wired is, like, I'm always going to try to do something as efficiently as I can. So previously, you know, when I was billing by the hour and billing ethically, I was actually getting penalized for my own efficiency. It's the irony, right? You know, you, you, you reinvent the wheel, you get credit, you, you, you don't reinvent the wheel and you're honest, suddenly you're giving away the car for not too much money. And so the clients all love the fact that we're giving fixed fees on these or, or you know, quoting things at least. But the flip side is actually that I'm able to benefit to some extent. And we just have certainty. We'll eat the risk if there's extra stuff. But because we've built up such expertise, right? Like we're able to give great value to the client because whatever question they're asking, we've been asked literally 50, hundred times before because we're working with, you know, we probably became the go-to myself, another person, the go-to people for companies looking to expand to Canada from abroad. So as a result of that, when you have repetitive things, it makes it a lot easier on bigger files. Like M&A deals obviously gets somewhat tougher because there's more variables and that's where having good data would be helpful. I usually have a good sense. And I think at the end of the day, 
my view is there's usually a way to, to get things done. But, you know, I like to understand the client's expectations because, you know, if I'm billing them by the hour, I still need to know their expectations because I'm going to have to send you a bill eventually. And I would rather, you know, manage those expectations. So to me, there's no downside in having that conversation upfront, even if you're not really agreeing to a fixed fee, just a quote. I'm also not stupid. And I realize that that quote is almost it. You're, it's a real anchor, you know, at the oh, end of the day, the client anchor. is anchored oh, to that. So, you know, you want to range in those cases for sure. But my view is there's enough data out there and there's enough tasks that lawyers are doing where if they have a good process, they should not be charging as much as they are. But, you know, I can think of many examples where you just see things and go, like, really, that took that long? You know, you see a bill from the other side or whatever, and you're going, I'm a little concerned. Like, on the one hand, you're either lying, or on the other hand, wow, that is not a good process. There's no, there's no good alternative in some of those cases for, for what's happening. So, And that's not to say that's all the time, but you definitely see examples where you say, this isn't fair to the clients, and, and that doesn't sit well with me for sure. Well, and, you know, ultimately with a fixed fee price, what it is doing is pushing risk to the lawyer. Like the lawyer has to bear a little bit of risk. And, you know, I've had dozens of conversations with lawyers about, oh, I'm going to lose money at that price. And I like to remind them that, no, you're not. You're going to make that many dollars for however much time you spend doing it. And again, for us, the bread and butter being solos and small firms, they have so much time spent not billing that, like, no, you're not losing money. You're making less per minute, but it's all gravy, right? Be- For sure. And I think also sometimes people lose sight of the opportunity cost of doing their own business development. Exactly. And, I mean, and I've done a lot of that. And I mean, LinkedIn's an interesting one uh, because it's it's a one-to-many. I post one thing uh, and you know people can see it. And it's funny, my wife has started to get into LinkedIn. So I was helping her, you know, one of these, not a New Year's resolution, but I've seen a number of people, colleagues and stuff reaching out. And it's crazy. She just posted something the other day. She hit 200,000 views on it, which is actually better than a single post I've ever written. And it was like her worst post. Amazing. And I can't, I honestly like, I can't figure out why that posted. So, well, it doesn't make any sense, but I'm just sitting there laughing. I'm going, you know, you wrote one thing, you've got 200,000 views. Um, think about 200, that. 200,000 views. That's awesome. That's, 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 which is, which is incredibly high. Um, but I would say, you know, these days, like my average LinkedIn post is between 10 and 50,000 views off something that's, you know, a thousand characters or whatever the limit is. Yeah. So, you know, you want these that's ones. That's a lot of networking solutions. events, Aaron. That's a lot of that. Exactly. So, but, but all that to say is I think, you know, people are used to doing this one-on-one things and you have a series of lunches or this and that, and you hope it pays off in two years or a year or whatever. But, you know, if you're handing somebody a client and they can not have to do all that upfront work, well, if you, if you factor in an hourly rate on that time and really do the math, you're spending a lot of money already or time or whatever you want to call it. Time is money on stuff that if you reallocate it, this could be way better. But I way think, better. you know, at the end of the day, like if you're doing something once, it's hard to do it efficiently. But if you're good at it and become good at it, there's no reason you can't benefit and the client can't benefit at the same time with a fixed fee model. And I think that's, you know, something you, you guys are doing really well is, is, you know, you're keeping the client front and center, which I think a lot of lawyers forget to do. And everything starts there. And there's a reason you've seen such an uptake in business. And the result is, you know, you've got some smart, savvier lawyers who say, okay, I can have this pipeline of clients, I can do good work, and I can have this volume. And that's a really successful business model for somebody who's thinking innovatively and properly, and the client's winning too. So it's like this really great model that I think you're clearly on the right path. And I'm excited to see how this expands even more over over the coming years. Well, we appreciate that, Aaron. And, you know, for me, from day one, it was always just about switching the incentives. The billable hour just by its nature is provides bad incentives. It's, it is, you know, it provides the incentive to be inefficient, yep, you know, because sure. you're going to make less money, the more efficient you are. Whereas the fixed fee model, which is, you know, what good lawyers all about, billable hours are not allowed on the platform. It just flips that entirely. Now you are winning if you're more efficient. And for me, that was super important. So simple just by requiring mandating upfront fixed fee pricing, you can drive all of these micro efficiencies. Cause we don't have to tell lawyers like you how to be efficient you just know that you're going to be rewarded if you are. For sure. And I think sometimes people think, oh, the client's going to, the quality is going to suffer. And I, I don't fully agree with that at all. I mean, especially if you're doing something and you've done it many times, I mean, you, you, bait, you start with a good starting point, you know what to ask, you find a good automated way or some other way of getting there, and then you're good to go. Like there does not need to be a sacrifice of quality just because you're providing a more affordable service. And I think at the end of the day, you know, we know there's so many people that need lawyers that are not hiring lawyers because they can't afford one. Uh, you know, the hourly rates are really high, the costs are high. And so 
even just being able to provide services, whether it's the small businesses or individuals who otherwise couldn't have afforded a lawyer, but desperately needed one and knew that uh, is a huge, you know, access to justice piece that I think you're helping solve. And it's not the only thing you're doing, obviously, but, but there is a real access to justice crisis, as we know. And, and there is an access to justice, to justice crisis, especially amongst small businesses who cannot afford a lawyer, but need legal advice. And as a result of not having that advice are often making decisions that may not be ideal or are getting hurt by stuff because they need someone to do the work, but not at the price point, you know, that contracts for $5,000, not going to pay $4,000 for someone to review it, even though in theory, your liability could actually be, you know, a million dollars, for example, mm. it's just from a business standpoint, the math doesn't add up. So totally. And I think it is one of the most overlooked places when people talk about the access to justice crisis, you know, they think courts, they think families criminal, but the entrepreneurs are so underserved and the lawyers in that space, again, have all this capacity that if we can find a way to bridge that, bridge that gap, um, you know, we can make a lot of people happy on both sides of the equation. Absolutely. And, and so just jumping in here and I know you've also brought up in the past some of the mental health issues uh, associated with the billable hour and the current model that we have implemented in the legal profession. And obviously, that's a complicated subject, but I do think it's um, important enough to touch on because I know for myself, my time at the big firm, I experienced some of those. I know many do. many other lawyers who have as well. And, you know, you talk about the substance abuse and things like that. Well, I have no data and I don't pre- pretend to be an expert um, just by my own experience and looking around it, there, there seems to be something to that, that argument. So uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think ment- there's a mental health crisis happening in the world right now. There's a mental health crisis happening in Canada, uh, you know, COVID related and just in general. And, and there's, a, there's been a mental health crisis in the legal profession for, for decades, probably. And it's especially high now, I think. Yeah. I mean, we've got high rates of, you know, all the bad stuff, alcoholism, depression, suicide, anxiety, and all that. You know, I sort of, I, I focus on this from the perspective of the younger lawyers, because I think they're in a tough spot. You know, you're coming out of law school these days with a lot of debt for some people, at least the cost of living in some places, especially if you're in the Toronto market, which is, you know, sky high, whether it's rent or especially, uh, you know, to buy. And you're coming out of school where you really didn't learn much that was useful for practicing. And, you know, I'm, again, we're talking the big firm context here, but it's true in the smaller firms too. And you end up in a firm and you're expected to be useful and good and do things quickly and do things right. But you're almost set up to fail in my mind from day one because you don't have the training you need to do the work. In fact, like, you know, one of my most popular LinkedIn posts was literally about how I never read a contract in law school. And I, and like, I had the top grade of my contracts class, uh, never, never read a contract. That's mind blowing uh, to think, you know, I spend all my day, you know, these days, if I'm looking at words, they're in contracts or they're emails, but I mean, that's the bread and butter of what I deal with, whether it's buying and selling a company, that's a privacy policy, whether it's, you know, founding a company and helping an entrepreneur, and to think, you know, how did I go through three years of law school and never look at that? That's crazy. But on top of that is I see so much where the training in law firms just isn't working. It's, you know, it, I've talked to hundreds of people about this. It's not what it needs to be. And it's not fully the law firm's fault. The law schools haven't helped them out. But, you know, you, you need to learn building blocks and then build them from the ground up so you can understand the big picture. And what ends up happening in reality, and I'm sure Brett and Matt, you experienced this, you get thrown onto a deal or a random file because somebody needs help urgently on something or they want your help. And you draft a bunch of documents that could be monkey work or could involve thinking. And then you move on to the next one and the next one. But at some point in time, you become that person who's dealing with the client directly, who needs to know that when the client says they want X, they actually want Y, or that you need to ask five different questions to figure out how to deal with it. But if all you know is when you're starting out is, I've been told to do X, so I do X. When one variable changes later and you're the person in charge, you don't know what to do because all you need to know how to do is that exact thing you were told to do before. And so I look back at so many deals and things I worked on in my first couple of years where as I started you know, doing a lot more myself and being that go-to person, I actually couldn't draw on those experiences because I had no context for them at the time. If people had taken the time, again, build hours, incentive, all that stuff to say, hey, Aaron, you know, these steps that we're having you do on this M&A deal, these are only happening because there's a U.S. buyer, and as a result of that, we have to do X, Y, Z. That would have been really helpful because then I could add to my mental map of, okay, U.S. buyer affects this, this, and this. But when you don't have that context, when people don't take that time, what you end up with is a lot of experiences that aren't that helpful. And the result is you don't really feel a sense of purpose for what you're doing because you're just churning out documents. You don't know what you're doing. 
which is a recipe for anxiety and stress. And for some people, maybe depression. And it leads you to leave law firms. I think for a lot of people, you know, you're overworked, you're underpaid for how much you're working and you're not feeling fulfilled. And I think you can find a lot more fulfillment if you actually understand what you're doing. And so I really think this training piece has a big role in mental health. So does the billable hour. So does overwork. So does law firm culture. But I think training is one of these things that people have really not been paying enough attention to. And I think it will help us get a long, long way, at least if we can figure out the training piece. Well, yeah, it drives so much anxiety, right? It, expected to be perfect and yet having no real clue what you're doing. And just like a funny well, that's, idea. That that's pop- how I learned. So that's how you should learn. Brad. Yeah. I went through it. So you should go through and it. And I was just, I just had the crazy idea. I'm like, what if they taught doctors the way they teach lawyers? <laughs> like that would be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, no, it's, you know, the lack of hands-on stuff in school. I mean, Ryerson's doing a pretty good job with, with their new law school. And that's why I've been really excited to be involved with that. And I've been following that for a while. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's tough, you know, and, and I don't expect law schools to change. There's no incentive. Again, you talk about incentives. As long as there's enough demand uh, coming in, then, then, then not, no incentive to well, change. Well, enough of these conversations like this will uh, definitely yeah. get that ball rolling. So we'll see. I think the training, the topic is something I'm really passionate about right now and uh, excited to see where, where some of these things go because there's so much good work happening. And, and one of the cool things during the pandemic too has been seeing law students t- create their own initiatives, their own mentoring groups, their own little you know, uh, communities, uh, entrepreneurial ventures, that's been really exciting. And it just gives me inspiration and hope for, you know, this next generation really wants to make things better. And I'm excited to see where that goes. They're going to run into all the fun part about reality and dealing with the current profession. But I think there's a lot of potential for, for good change. Well, and, you know, platforms like Good Lawyer will provide options for some to, you know, skip the rigmarole of uh, what, you know, the traditional law firm and experience looks like. and we're seeing that already with some of the younger lawyers on the platform, just diving right in, you know, entrepreneurial at their core. And as good lawyer grows and we build more of those support systems for those lawyers, you know, I just see it being so advantageous again, for both sides of the equation, lawyers living more fulfilled, less stressful lives and helping, helping more entrepreneurs or, you know, just helping more people generally. Yeah. And I, I still don't think a lot of bigger law firms or maybe medium-sized ones have fully wrapped their heads around the fact that most new lawyers don't actually want to work there. They're doing it to pay off debt or they're not happy when they're working there. And I mean, of course, if they, if they make changes, there are lots of ways to improve that. But as I was saying before, and as you're saying, Brett, I mean, whether it's through a good lawyer or other platforms, you know, for entrepreneurial lawyers, there are more alternatives than ever to make a decent living and do good legal work and do it in a way that's, you know, true to you. And I think that that's so important where, you know, firms really have to start thinking about, you know, what are we doing to keep good talent? How are we making them, you know, feel like this is a place where they can be themselves, where they can be entrepreneurial within, within reason, at least. And, and quite frankly, see entrepreneurialism as a positive and not necessarily as something to be avoided because you're rocking the boat of it. Totally. Yeah. So, and let me, um, let me jump on that a little bit, actually, because I've, we've been sitting here and waxing eloquent about some of the ills of big law. And uh, obviously, you're a, a big firm lawyer. So yep. uh, maybe maybe I can give you a bit of an opportunity to, to add some nuance to this, because I'm assuming I assume you enjoy your practice. You know, I'm just kind of wondering if you can also give maybe some of the counterbalance. What, like, what are the things you like about working at a big shop and why have you stayed for this many years? For sure. So, I mean, so yeah, I, I was a 1L summer student at Aaron Burles, 2L uh, article there, associate for a while, and then became a partner in early 2020. And, you know, I, I really like the work I do. And I don't think most lawyers can truthfully say that. Like, I like the clients I work with. So I work with a lot of just practical business savvy clients. And I'm a business guy at heart. Like I'm an entrepreneur or business person, you know, at the root of it. And so I really see my role as I, I help business, I help solve business problems for businesses just using my legal hat. But really it comes down to, you know, understanding their business, which to me is fun. And I'm just naturally curious. And our firm does a lot of work with, with, with small and medium sized sort of clients. Um, so, you know, we do work with public companies. I do work with public companies. We do work with startups, but the bread and butter of our firm is sort of mid-market. And what that means often is I get to deal with the business people directly because they may not have an in-house lawyer. So I'm speaking their language. I'm understanding their business. We're, we're spitballing on strategic ways we can do things. And I love that, right? It's, it's really great. And the clients really like that. I can also speak in plain language and, and have conversations and they don't feel like they're dealing with a stuffy lawyer who's going to write them a 20 page memo about something that they just literally need a go or no go answer. And that I'm not going to hedge it. Like I know at the end of the day, you're asking me, you're bringing up an issue or you're asking a question because you need to do something in real life and you need to make a decision. So yeah, like obviously there's risk. We know that. That's why you talk to me. What would I do if I was in your shoes based on what I know about you is always sort of what I keep in mind. 
Um, so, so really interesting clients. Uh, I really like the colleagues I work with. Like we really, the, the culture in terms of people being respectful and, and kind at our firm, I think is probably unique amongst bigger firms. And, you know, during COVID, a lot of support amongst people and things like that. And yeah, great mentorship internally, you know, a lot of informal mentors who have been great. And I get to work with people that are literally, you know, some of the top experts in the country on all sorts of different areas. And that's, you know, you're not going to find that in, in all environments for sure. So there's tons of benefits. Uh, obviously, you know, I think a lot of people go into big law to start for the compensation. You know, it's, it's number one, the easier path in law school. Like it's, you know, if you get that job, it's very streamlined, you know, you, you summer, you article and all that. And obviously you're thinking about student debt or buying a house or whatever people are thinking of. And to start at least, it's a more lucrative path. I think long-term, the people that are going to make the most money, if that's what you care about, are people that leave big law to do their own thing. And I can certainly say, you know, big law is a stable path in theory, but but there are alternatives that can pay you more if that's your goal or, or possibly be more rewarding. But for me, you know, I like the work I do. I like the people I work with. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously compensated relatively well. So, you know, there, there's a lot to like there. I think the challenges are obviously, you know, you're dealing within a bigger system with, with you know, traditionally traditional ways of doing things and, and maybe a little bit less openness to some of the things some people might want to do. And that's sort of the challenge, I think, is, is, is balancing that. But I think, as I was saying before, I mean, there's really never a better time than now to start taking some risks because you can always go back, uh, especially, you know, once you've been at a firm for a couple of years. Uh, certainly if you're, you know, a new call or a first year lawyer, yeah, you probably need to get some experience under your belt before you jump ship. But I think really, you know, for bigger firms have a lot to offer in terms of also just like, you know, think about it, if you're running your own firm in the middle of pandemic and you do an area of law where demand was low, like you're, I don't know, a retail lawyer, you, you, you like you do law only for restaurants, for example, and you don't do bankruptcy, you know, not, not a great time to be in that business because your clients are not doing so well. They don't have much money and they need help. Um, so, you know, you have that, that hedge, right? You're part of a bigger system, you know, you're, you have a stable income and things like that. But there are, the world is changing. And I think we're also seeing though, you know, bigger firms coming up with alternative paths where maybe you're not a lawyer, but you're doing innovation internally or things like that. So there are lots of really interesting environments to work with great people and make some really big change from within big firms. But you've got the usual challenges of just culture and structure and tradition that work against you for sure. Yeah, and I mean, my like sort of takeaway is, you know, obviously lawyers are a risk averse bunch on the whole. But, you know, I think they, any lawyers listening need to weigh that against, you know, a pretty simple question, which is, are you fulfilled? Yep. And I think a lot of lawyers give up on that golden handcuffs. You, I'm sure well, you've heard of Fulfillment for a lot of people is just monetary fulfillment, obviously. Yeah, and that's not it, real fulfillment. But again, the younger generations of lawyers, I think, are less financially motivated. still financially motivated, but there's more to the story. And, uh, you know, lawyers, if you're a lawyer... And especially if you're a lawyer at a big shop, like you're, you're sharp, you're productive, you're good at something that's worth a lot of money to some people, you know, you should be fulfilled and there should be a way for you to find that. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's enough actual data that suggests that forget legal, like money, you know, we we all know that your happiness is limited with money. And we also know that, you know, bonuses and things like that, while people like them are not the best way to actually motivate people. And so I think historically law firms assumed and probably was probably true at a time that, Money was the way to motivate people, and especially for our generation and the next one coming in, it's not the answer. I mean, yeah, you want to get paid, don't get me wrong, but if, if you think just paying people more is going to solve these problems, it's not. People will jump ship, you know, and, and I think firms really have to rethink and talk to their younger lawyers or, or anyone, any staff, anybody, and say, what motivates you? What, you know, and people tend, you know, they always say people leave bad bosses or cultures or things like that. Like money is not the issue. Uh, it's probably how much am I working? Uh, it's probably how much control do I have over my life? Do I like the work I'm doing? Do I like the clients? And as you said, do I feel fulfilled, whatever that means to you? And, you know, that could be outside of work, that could be through work. But I think, as you said, Brad, I couldn't agree more. Like fulfillment is so important. And I'm not sure the traditional big law model allows for optimal fulfillment for the average younger lawyer coming in. Totally. Well, I think Matt, did, I, did I recruit you with the paycheck? so Aaron switching gears here just a bit because I do want to get your thoughts on uh, legal tech because I know you're a big advocate and uh, been pushing that again on your LinkedIn which I encourage everybody to go check out Um, but just maybe uh, and I am cognizant of time maybe just give us your uh, 
10,000 foot overview of what gets you excited and how this can potentially disrupt, as you mentioned, the entrenched culture that law is oftentimes accused of and frankly has. Uh, do you see this as a way out potentially? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think historically, you know, it was faster, better, cheaper, choose two of three. And I think good technology and good process allow you to get all of them. You know, at the end of the day, clients want the way clients perceive value and how much a lawyer charges traditionally is misaligned. Right. So good lawyer is interesting because the value proposition to the client is clear and the lawyers sign on and everyone knows what it is. But technology can really help us do our work more efficiently and that's or, or in better ways. You know, we can uncover parts of a case we may have missed and that will help us win the case. It could help us, you know, find things in, in due diligence, for example, that again may have been missed and are really important for our client's risk perspective. But a lot of it is workflow. And you know, we talk about people, process technology as this trinity. And so there's great legal tech. Canada is a huge hub and I use stuff all the time. Uh, every single day I'm using tools that were created in the last five or six years by people like you or me in many cases who were former lawyers who said, you know, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And it was usually because of an experience they went through, you know, working on a deal, navigating six firms in different countries and, you know, at two in the morning and navigating time changes and just, you know, getting bombarded by emails and thinking there must be a better, a better process for this. So I think a lot of the technology, what it does is it solves process issues at the same time as it solves technology issues. So love legal tech. On the one hand, though, I think sometimes we get a little too excited about the tech and we need to focus more on the process. And especially if you're working at a firm, the people side is huge because at the end of the day, just because something is better for the client doesn't mean it's better in the short term for the business and really helping educate people to understand the value to their clients and how the firm can make more money, how you can be happier and how clients can be happier leveraging tech and process. But you've got to be open-minded to that because, you know, these are long-term plays and I don't always think law firms are thinking long-term. And, you know, perfect segue to why don't they think long-term, Aaron? Yeah. So, I mean, in some cases, it's just the partnership model, like literally from a tax perspective, the money uh, as a partner, I get taxed if we keep the money in the firm. So, you know, I got to pay a tax bill, but I have no money. That's a good way to lose partners who expect lots of money every year. But but just the incentive system, you're not a real equity owner. You, you own a temporary interest in a firm that gets you money that comes out. And so, you know, if I'm a just we're all rent space. Things. You know, if I'm a 75-year-old lawyer who's about to retire, like I don't want the firm. I don't really care from an extrinsic standpoint about how the totally. firm does in 15 years. But as someone who, you know, is 31, yeah, I care in a lot different ways long term. And so everyone has a different incentive. And at the end of the day, you know, the heads of firms are really protecting the interests of the people who have the most interest in the firm. And when I say interest, I mean economic interest. And generally, those people are are older or or more experienced, and they prefer the status quo. That's not 100% the case. But it's often the case for sure. But I would argue that they don't have the most economic interest in the firm. They have the most immediate economic Correct. most interest immediate in the economic firm. interest for and sure. And that's that's the key piece is that they don't have the most economic interest. They just have the most immediate interest. And by leaving those folks in charge, it's not beneficial to the you know. It's not beneficial the to the overall of firm. The firm. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You know, and who are they serving? You know, it's 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 one of these questions. You know, who who is who is your stakeholder? Is it the people in power? You know, people with the most interest currently, or is it the overall entity? And if you are serving the overall entity, I couldn't agree more. You know, you've got the wrong people in a lot of cases, or or certainly the wrong incentives. And, and there's a real struggle there and a real tension between short term, long term. And if you look at the U.S., for example, where they publish, you should be you know, the managing partner of Air. <laughs> You know, if, if you look at the U.S. where they publish, you know, profits per partner, for example, as a metric, you know, people say, okay, well, I want to be a partner of this firm because I'll make more money today. You know, no one's thinking about five or 10 years from now, but guess what? You'll just jump to another firm by then. So, you know, if you're living in these short-term metrics, it's no wonder that people are managing for those short-term metrics. Yeah, I think that's such an important principle that oftentimes gets missed is the way it's set up, especially with the partnership model. I mean, it is about right here, right now. And you talk about, and, and you know, you see this uh, existing in like the stock market and other places with the quarterly earning reports and things like that, sure. where, you know, you incentivize the, the short-term thinking and that's exactly what you get. And I'm not saying all firms are guilty of this equally. Some definitely take better steps to have a bit longer term perspective. Sounds like you work at a firm that does that. For sure. And but- I think firms are trying, but I think, you know, when you look at their resource allocation, I think you'd realign a lot of that towards more long-term strategic thinking. In other and, and, and fundamentally, the model prohibits it. Yep. When they when they reach retirement, they are out. 
and there is no residual benefit to them, their families or anything beyond that point. And yeah, my, my view is always, you know, don't you want to create the right incentive structure so that people will care about how their clients get transitioned and all these things? And some firms have done that. But, you know, you don't need to give them real equity, but you can create the right incentives at certain stages to say, you're, you know, you will be compensated for, again, doing the right thing. Whatever the right thing means depends on the firm and depends on what you're trying to incentivize. But there are ways to get people there. And I don't think we always see those, those done, but certainly, you know, short-term thinking is real. And I even see this on business development where, you know, you're probably better off as a young lawyer spending a lot of time on business development, but short-term, you're not getting a bonus. <laughs> you know, you, the short-term bonus comes from billing hours, but long-term, you're way better off taking hours away from that and break, building business or, or using a platform like a good lawyer that will literally give business to you. Aaron, that's why I built 1300 in my final year and a thousand non-billables. I think that might be a record. <laughs> I think I have the Aaron Umbrellas record for non-billables as well. Uh, oh, yeah. No doubt about that. I was very proud of that. And I recorded everything. I'm like, you guys want to know what I'm doing? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> there you go. Some maybe not so sage advice for all you law students out there. <laughs> uh, well, Listen, Aaron, uh, I do want to be respectful of your time. And I see that the clock has just st struck midnight. But um, just as a final question, I like to ask all of our guests, um, do you have any favorite resources that have helped you on your journey, whether that be books, podcasts, meditation apps, whatever that is, that uh, maybe you'd recommend to your colleagues, law students, young lawyers, whatever that may be? Yeah. I mean, I would say so practical law, which has been in Canada for the last you know, three to five years is a great resource. Uh, I call it my, my best mentor, uh, the mentor that's there 24 seven and doesn't mind how much I ask. I think it's an incredible resource if you have access to it, uh, especially for younger lawyers, like practice notes and all these detailed, you know, explanations of things can really help you learn different areas of law and help you understand the big picture, which is great. There's so many great podcasts out there. Obviously your podcast, I'm a huge fan of, but, but just a lot out there. Um, Building New Law is one I'm a big fan of, which is another uh, Canadian you know, podcast. And, and there's just so many others, uh, really good ones out there. I'm also a huge fan of non-law podcasts, obviously. So, you know, I think law schools don't really teach you anything other than whatever they teach you, which is law related. So like Adam Grant, I'm really into his podcast right now and organizational behavior, Brene Brown, things like that. Just uh, And for me personally, also, I listen to a lot of sales podcasts now because, you know, if you're not using good lawyer, then you got to find other ways to bring in work and law school doesn't teach you that either. So probably should put that time towards just working with good lawyer and scrap all of that. Um, and then I would say, yeah, meditation, all that stuff, just finding some way to have downtime and something that allows you to relax, whatever that is, you know, you need to build that time, exercise, all that stuff, eating healthy, because if not, you're going to be in trouble. Like it's a marathon, uh, not a sprint. You learn that in law school and that continues in, in real life as well. So uh, I think you've got to just find a way to find some balance. And sometimes I'm great at that. Other times I'm not. Yeah. Well, no, I, you I, I hear are a, a breath, of, breath of fresh air, my friend. You know, I, I, I can tell you love what you do. I know that there's, you know, some things probably about what you do that you would like to see a little differently, but uh, it is awesome talking to a lawyer that is like truly passionate about what they do and, you know, so open to what can come in the future for sure. I'm excited and, and such a huge fan of what you're doing. So keep up the great work and I'm sure we'll, I'll be back to talk more in the future. Oh, we'll, we'll be having you back, my friend. That's for All sure. Right, sounds great. hundred percent. Thank you very much, Aaron. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks. Matt. Thanks, Brad. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.